So this morning I want to continue and really give the last morning uh, in a sequence of looking at the theme of developing equanimity in the midst of action. So that request to have more depth on equanimity will have, may have instant gratification <laughs> this morning, which is not great equanimity training. But <laughs> so, uh, What I want to do this morning is to talk very briefly, generally, about equanimity, bring in some different themes than we've been looking at, and then talk about a very powerful principle of uh, one particular teaching on how to, how to bring uh, equanimity into our interaction and action in the world, in our, in our daily lives, in our relationships, and so forth. So, so thus far, we've emphasized uh, how equanimity is a sense of balance. It's a way of cultivating greater balance with whatever comes up. It's a natural fruit of our practice. In many ways, what we do when we sit with awareness is we get some space around whatever we're experiencing. It's particularly evident with the hard stuff. When we sit on the cushion or when we bring awareness um, in our daily lives, out, outside of this hall or out, off the cushion, to anything which is difficult or troubling or an old pattern, an old habit, we bring awareness to it. We basically give spaciousness, more spaciousness to that so it's not quite so gripping us. We're not so caught in it. We could still be 80% caught, but that 20% can make a huge difference. You know, and then you know, when we first sit, maybe there's 5% space and 95% stuckness. But we, we at least, and that, that may, we may experience that simply as being stuck and knowing we're stuck. That's still mindfulness. And that's actually, it, it sometimes doesn't feel very consoling, <laughs> right? But it's actually very significant because it's like a little bit of a puncture in the balloon, so to speak, or it, another metaphor, it gives some space around what's difficult. <clears throat> Equanimity is very much about being more spacious with whatever's happening, creating more space. And that, again, occurs, I think, developmentally. It can first be there as simply saying to myself, I'm stuck, I'm suffering, this is happening. And it doesn't feel like that's helping too much or very much at all. But that still is increasing space. That's still cultivating more equanimity. As we practice more, the space gets larger, as it were. 5% space, 20% space, 50% space. And this is uh, how our practice works. And this is a lot of how transformation occurs. <coughs> that when we have, for example, old patterns from the past, and this is, can link with last week's topic of karma, right? One, one way we understand karma that karma is the, um, the momentum of our habits, basically. It's a simple way to talk about karma. Karma is not so much this mystical calculus whereby, you know, because I uh, kind of was in a hurry and ran a light trying to get here to be able to study equanimity, that something negative happens later, or you know, or you know, I, you know, I went through a light coming from San Rafael, and then five minutes later, a car cut me off. 
that's karma. You know, that's that's kind of a popular notion of karma. Like you kind of quick, you know, like I think like there's, I think there was even a song called Instant Karma, right? Right, something like that. That's a little bit the that's not really the the deepest aspect of karma. The Buddha talked about karma, as I imagine Tony talked about last time, as intention. Yeah. It's really the way that whatever we intend in the present gives further energy for that intention in the future. Whatever habits we are cultivating in the present gives more energy for those in the future. And we know that a lot of what we do when we sit is we feel the habit energy that we may have been developing all our lives. Some of it personal, some of it from the family, some of it maybe from the culture, right? And we sit with that habit energy and it can be uncomfortable sometimes. Some, some of the habit energy is about how we relate to the positive, some about how we relate to the negative. But we, we, we um, create awareness around that habit energy and a few things happen in that process. We really, in a way, develop more equanimity and balance around all that habit energy. And in the process, we touch the habit energy. Some of it starts to get released, so we're not doing it any, so much anymore. I think we notice that when we practice. We are aware of this or that pattern, this or that habit. Maybe it's a tendency for me, when something goes wrong, to blame myself. Very common habit energy that we may have learned as kids, right? You know, you know, to be the best way we could work with a situation. And so we notice that in meditation, we start being there, watching the blaming with awareness. And there's something that happens when awareness occurs that we both see into the habit. We also uh, have space around it. We become more balanced with it. And over time, I think two things start to happen. One is that the old habit starts to get uh, released and doesn't occur so much anymore. Or it occurs, but we notice it in one minute rather than previously three hours. Right? So that's how practice works. And there's a kind, uh, it, so it really can relate very directly to this theme of karma. You know, that it, we, so we, on the one hand, we start to release the old habits. On the other hand, we have more equanimity about them. You know, something we're not, we've seen it a lot and we're not so bothered by it. And we have some confidence or patience that awareness in the long run will work through this. You know, along with other tools, you know, we use a lot of tools here, but awareness is a primary tool. And so, and that's, that's another way to understand equanimity. Equanimity is in part an ability to be balanced with our habits and our patterns. To be balanced even when we go into suffering and to be present with it. So a lot of the training in equanimity is to learn how to be present and relatively balanced or more balanced with our hard stuff. And that's where it's particularly applicable in action. So we learn how to see the patterns and to be more present with them, and learn increasingly not to let those patterns rule us. That's, that's the essence of what we're doing here. That's why we come. I think that's why, uh, maybe that's one half of why we come. The other aspect is that in order to do that, 
we cultivate awareness, we cultivate a kind heart, we cultivate compassion. And on the one hand, we kind of help with the unraveling of past conditioning. We could say past karma, past patterns, particularly ones that are not helpful. That's part of what we do. And in order to do that, we need these qualities of awareness and compassion, which we sometimes speak about as our awakened mind and heart. So on the one hand, we unravel our bad habits, (laughs) so to speak, but we do that, we can only do that by calling upon our awakened qualities, thinking of awareness or mindfulness as part of our awake nature. And this practice has the presumption that that awake nature is deeper than our habits. Very optimistic view of human nature in that sense. That our habits are more superficial. And I think as we practice more and more, that becomes a lived experience. In the short run, we may have to take that on faith. Because it can seem like the habits are everything, right? Like they're omnipresent. But as we practice more, we start to unravel the habits and we start to uh, see our true identity more and more with our awakened nature, our open heart, our clear mind, our radiant being. We touch that more and more, even if it's just for brief moments. And that is, is done in part through this cultivation of equanimity, which, let, you know, it's really another word, it's just a word to say we create space. We create more space around our stuff, our habits, our patterns, and we can be more balanced with everything. Equanimity, again, literally means balance. So there's this beautiful teaching that also uh, helps us to develop equanimity further, particularly in the context of of action. And that's what I want to talk about for the rest of uh, my time this morning. And it's a... um, teaching which I really love and it's one of my favorites. There are different ways of talking about it but it really is a combination of having an aspect of equanimity and connecting it with caring more, more clearly. And that I, I would um, say that the principle can be expressed with different lang- kind, kinds of language. It's something about having very full action in whatever we're doing, very full presence, being full and doing what seems appropriate or right, and then somehow letting things be what they are. Paradoxical. You know, in the um, Hindu tradition, which is I think where I first learned it, it's called action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. I, I think I first really, I had read about that when I was in school, you know, in university. I had read the Bhagavad Gita, where that's the core, a core teaching. You know, it comes up in that text as one of the four kinds of yoga. You know, four ways of accessing the sacred. One of those ways is to um, access it, especially through knowledge. A little more for those of intellectual persuasion. That's called jhana, uh, uh, jhana yoga. And then a second way is through 
the heart and devotion. That's called bhakti yoga. Some of you know that term from, you know, people who do like chanting and kirtan and, you know, that kind of devotional chanting. That would be that kind of approach. And then a third approach is more through meditation. It's called raja yoga or the kingly yoga. And then the fourth is called karma yoga. And karma just means action. So this is like action yoga. This would be those whose way of practice is more through service, through helping others, through acting in the world. It could be as a teacher, as a therapist, as a um, craftsperson, you know, whatever one does, uh, as a um, landscaper, as a carpenter, and so forth. Uh, That could be karma yoga, where you take that as your, kind of your core practice mode. And for that mode of karma yoga in the Gita, the core teaching on how to do that is to act without attachment to the fruits of one's action. So let me say more what that means. And I'll start by saying that I particularly got really, really familiar with this uh, when I was a teacher, when I was a young college teacher. I was like in my, uh, I guess I was my uh, early 30s. And I was teaching at the University of Kentucky. And uh, there there was an unusual arrangement within the university where where when they set the liberal arts requirements, like in the 60s or something, and they they said that every student who's getting a general, you know, I think it was a general requirement, they could either take two math courses or two philosophy courses. This, in, this ensured that the philosophy department would be very large <laughs> for the indefinite future. And I was hired to be a member of the philosophy department at the University of Kentucky. And, and I was, um, yeah, it was, it was a, uh, I was surprised how large the philosophy department was. <laughs> but it, it made sense because what percentage of people would choose two math courses? So... So, I, so I'm sure my, I probably wouldn't be here today where I am without that decision made in the 1960s. So anyway, um, so we had a lot of introductory classes that met this requirement. One of them was an ethics, uh, introduction to ethics class. And as a young teacher, I was asked to teach that. And so I think it was me, probably my second year of teaching, um, I had a class in the evening it was in the fall, and I um, learned that first class. It was a small class, maybe 15 people, 15, 17 people. And about a, I, I discovered that first class that a, a third or more of the people in the class were on the, the uh, varsity football team. <laughs> and this was football season. So, and the class was at 7.30. And what had they done right before coming to my class? Well, immediately, they had probably had a very large lunch. Then they had four or five hours of practice. And then a very large dinner. And then they came to my class. I was an earnest young teacher. Interested in having people go to the depths of, you know, disciplined ethical inquiry. 
In other words, it was a total setup. <laughs> and what, of course, they most wanted to do was sleep. Their second option was just to be there and make jokes the whole time. I'm being humorous now. <laughs> but at the time, I was suffering. You can imagine. And I didn't know what to do. You know, and of course, they had influence with the other students, and so it just wasn't going like I wanted it to go. And I didn't know what to do. And I knew I was going to continue. I was getting my paychecks. That was okay. But otherwise, it was very frustrating. And at some point, I remembered this teaching that I had read from the Gita of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. I'd also remembered in other contexts. It's in a lot of traditions, some teaching like this. It's really very close to the teaching that we explored some in the last two sessions called the teaching of the eight worldly winds in the Buddhist teachings, where he says, look out especially for these winds which blow you around and knock you off center, the winds of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, uh, praise and blame. You know, that these were, or were kind of knock you off center. Somewhat related teaching. And so I remembered this teaching, which had the meaning that you act totally fully, but you let things be as they are. It's, a, again, paradoxical teaching. Doesn't, the mind is sometimes hard to wrap around it. It could be expressed in a few other ways. Um, T.S. Eliot, the poet, said it this way. He says, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. Another, in the way that I came to talk about this in very simple English is to say, do your best and let the chips fall where they may. That's, that's kind of simpler. But it, it's paradoxical because you, you can, ha- it's kind of like having, one can have very s- clear goals and you work for them and you try to make them happen. It's not about just being passive. It's not the kind of the teenage whatever. That would be a near enemy of equanimity, right? That's not true equanimity. It's not, you, one tries to act fully for the goals, but there's just not a contraction around the goal. And, and you know, and for example, that teaching is what Gandhi used as his guide in all of his work. He used that teaching. He said, I have a, totally clear goal, the independence of India. But he still, in his actions, he tried to act as full as he could for that goal, but see where he's, basically see where he's tight around it. See where we're tight around it, where I get, okay, I did my best and it didn't happen like I wanted. Am I, do I uh, torment myself about that? Or do I blame the others? That's really what the teaching is about. Um, so, that was very interesting to me to remember that. And I said, I'm going to give this a try. Nothing else is really working. And so I went and started going to the class and saying, I'm still going to have my best design of what I, what I want to do in a given class, right? I'm going to do my preparation. It doesn't mean I give up and just let whatever happens. I do my best preparation. But then having done that, I let go. And I let it be whatever it is. And to be honest, I think in the, in the weeks when I was working with that, I wasn't really sure what was happening. I wasn't sure whether it was going well or not going well. Um, some of the outward behavior wasn't, of the students wasn't changing particularly. 
but I, I know I was a lot less tight, you know, and I was uh, way more relaxed, and I just didn't so much worry about what was happening, while at the same time I was totally doing my best, you know, and trying to learn from everything and then come back and do it, but then just release it like that. And uh, it was very interesting because at the end of the semester, after I had already handed in grades, which is quite an important detail, um, some of the students came to me and said they had learned more in the class than they had in any other class. You know? And someone came a year later, I think one of the football players, and really said, talked about how much he appreciated it. And you know, in my time, seven years in working in that, in that kind of milieu, uh, that had to be somewhat genuine. Pe- people, you know, if I hadn't handed in the grades, then they never know what's going on. <laughs> but if I had, so, so, so it was very interesting in that way. And I came to uh, want to work with that principle. And I think, and I come to see it as as a very crucial principle in all sorts of areas. I think it's actually a lot of what we do with our meditation. You know, if if we've been meditating long enough, when we meditate, we try to do our best for a given session or a given retreat. You know, we practice hard, and then there's some way that we have to let it be whatever it is. If we're going to judge ourselves for, okay, this morning I, my mind was all over the place, I'm a bad meditator, that's, that's suffering. So there's something that we learn about that combination also in practice, that we somehow totally do our best and we let things be as they are. And so, uh, you know, when I was um, doing the interviews, for the book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which is the book I talked about that's out in the back, I interviewed about 15 people, all of whom were in some way doing service work or activism in the world from a spiritual basis. And virtually everyone talked about some version of this principle. It was quite beautiful. And I came to really unpack some of what that teaching means. It's not an easy teaching. And it's, it can be confusing. It does mean being, you know, having goals. It doesn't mean giving up goals. You know, I expressed it in the book as committed action, non-attachment to outcome. That was the language I used. Committed action means you have a goal, you try to get somewhere, and then you, you do your best and, and you release the outcome. So it could mean concretely, I'm at a meeting and I'd like the meeting to go this way, but I do my best, and to what extent am I tight about it, contracted, trying to control things? That's where the practice comes in with this principle. You know, and as I um, talked with a lot of people about this, I found that there were some, there was, there was, there were uh, ways to make, to kind of bring out the principle more clearly. I think the, the basic understanding is that The essence of life is to see it as a learning process and not as something where I just get what I want. And to take everything as learning. So, for example, I interviewed uh, Dr. Arya Ratni from Sri, Sri Lanka, one of the great figures of our time, who founded an organization called Sarvodaya, which has, in Sri Lanka, which has 15,000 village councils. And I, I was told that they had a fuller response to the tsunami than the government. 
a, a few years ago. And he explained this principle by saying, no matter what I do, if I have good intentions, I never really fail. Even what looks like an external failure is not really failure because I learn something from it. I may learn more equanimity or more balance or more compassion from my so-called failure. So quite, quite powerful in that way. And there is also, you know, there's also, I think, part of this is understanding what we might call the causes and conditions, which we've talked about in relation to equanimity. This is the wisdom dimension that when we, um, when we work with, um, over time, with a given situation, it's really crucial to have a sense of here are the causes and conditions in play. You know, here's the situation at work. Here are the causes and conditions in this relationship. Here's, if I'm an activist, here are the causes and conditions of the society. You know, my, as it were, narcissistic wish may be to solve the world's problems immediately. (laughs) But they're real causes and conditions, right? And I have to honor them. And the people that I talked to uh, talked about that a lot. You know, let me find this one beautiful passage. Yeah, a lot of people reflected about Vietnam. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great teacher, he put a tremendous number of years into trying to help there be a peaceful way to work with the conflict in Vietnam. Outwardly, it looks like he failed. This is what he said later. The conditions for success in terms of a political victory were not present for the Buddhist movement in Vietnam. Yet he did not regret the years of effort. He said, the success of a nonviolent struggle can be measured only in terms of the love and nonviolence attained, not whether a political victory was achieved. So that sense of seeing the causes and conditions clearly. It's that way that people have long-term perspectives. I think I mentioned two weeks ago, Dr. Ari Ratney likes to look at the response to the civil war in Sri Lanka in a 500-year perspective? You know, or can we look at our lives and our practice in a big perspective? The Dalai Lama says, when you're looking at your spiritual practice, you should have at least a five or 10-year perspective and not just look at this sitting, this retreat, and so forth. So it's to have this long-term perspective to understand some the causes and conditions. You know? And there's this sense of deep commitment, deep uh, being there and working with what tends to burn one out. A lot of the people I interviewed, they were, they were really in it for the long haul. You know, in the same way we need to be with our practice or anything that matters for the long <coughs> haul. So it's that there's a very long-term perspective that we can have. I think that can go along with this, with this teaching of doing our best and letting things be what they are. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting combination of energy and passion on the one hand and a kind of letting go on the other. Some of it is also to understand that we, we don't always know how things develop or change. There can be some, I think this kind of principle opens us up when we're to a kind of mystery. It's saying that 
and this, is a, this, is, this cultivates equanimity or spaciousness, I, this limited being, can't claim to fully understand how everything's going to change, including myself. And we can recognize our own ignorance to some extent and, and combine that with trying to have our best knowledge and act, but also know that certain things are mysterious. It's really evident in the social and political realm where who would have predicted the fall of the Soviet empire or the fall of apartheid in South Africa, you know, or probably someone in um, Mississippi in the 1940s, who would have imagined Mississippi uh, 50 years from, from then, you know? Where I think, so I think I heard this in the news uh, just a few days ago that the, um, the uh, head of the state troopers in Mississippi is an African American right now. Who would have expected that? It's mysterious how things change. So let me just end with one of my favorite ways to express this, or a favorite passage. Let me see where this is. This is from, uh, this is from uh, a woman from India named Bandana Shiva. Does anyone know her work? She is a uh, physicist, but also an environmental activist. And she was asked this question in an interview. Um, Every time I've heard you speak or met you, you've had so much energy, not only intellectual energy, but personal or spiritual energy. I'm wondering what keeps you so alive? And her answer is to go right to this principle that we've been discussing. So listen for that in her, in her answer, and I'll close with this. I'm wondering, what keeps you so alive? Well, it's always a mystery. <laughs> but then she goes on. It's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. Same principle, right? You can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them but then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me to always to take on the next challenge because I do not cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. So let's just sit and let that reverberate for a moment or two.
So we have some time for any reflections or questions or spontaneous poems. Okay, please. Yeah, I was gonna, this actually gets back to what you said a little bit earlier about the underlying assumption of the faith that ultimately our nature is such that it, it's more expansive and greater yeah. than our problems now. Still, what you were just talking about has a competing. I, I, I would say that there's an antecedent principle there, and that is right view. There's because in fact there's a, what I was thinking of. As you, I was thinking there's a competing Western myth, and that's the myth of Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. So, really, beforehand, even before you get into this act, actual, uh, this, it's, this is a, this is a, a practical vision. About. Yeah, but there has to be a point of departure, a philosophical step forward, mm -hmm. and this is the, this this is 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 the happier one, the more wholesome one. Yeah, but there are alternative visions that are yeah. much darker. Yeah, so the, the question is that of um, maybe is this pr principle of full action and let things be as they are, is that, is that linked with a, we might call it a philosophical assumption or assumption about human nature or maybe not an assumption, but, a, but, a, but you know, in a finding, you know, if we, if we talk about that being what we hear from the sages or the wise people, you know, so it's not so much a philosophical assumption that one just posits, but it could be in the case of the Buddha or other wise beings, it's, it's actually what they tell us they have found, right? And there are, and there are it, was, it was said really, remind me of your name? Scott. Scott, Scott was saying there, there are alternative visions which are, have a little more, more pessimistic views of human nature, and there are many of those, and they're, they're I think, both you know, in all in the cultures, especially, I think, I mean, I know them mostly in Western culture for the last few thousand years. There are quite a few of them that would, that would not have this sense of our basic nature being radiant, connected with love and wisdom, to, to be brief about that, see us more as um, um, suffering and lost, you know. And that's probably, maybe the, that's a very common view, you know. And, and um, you know, someone like Freud said that the best chance for human beings is to be a well-adjusted neurotic person. <laughs> I don't know if that was autobiographical <laughs> on his part, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure what to say. I think that, um, yeah, I, th I think that the, the sense of acting, I think what you, maybe what you're pointing to is that this action without attachment to the fruits of one's action uh, maybe does rest on a certain kind of faith or a certain uh, view or sense of human nature or about the direction of our practice. And I think that, that, that is there at times, you know, because we have to really, uh, ulti ultimately in Buddhist tradition, as in many traditions, faith takes different forms and it can be at first something that's a little more external 
but ultimately faith becomes something internalized, you know, and we say there's faith based on experience, which is different than faith not based on experience, if that makes some sense. So, does that help some? Yes. Yeah, thanks. Please, um, Pam. Um, this is wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. So much. Really inspiring. And um, I've been working with a phrase that actually comes from the Lojung teachings for 10 years. It's yeah. Abandon all hope of fruition. Yeah. Which is, I've always struggled with it. Yeah. And I think I struggle around the word hope. Yeah. And in the interview, the last person, she said, you know, don't become hopeless. Yeah. So my question is, how do you re- how do you remain hopeful without attaching to the outcome? Yeah. So the question, the question is about... No, no, that's a, that's a clear question. The question is about, about, in all of this, the place of hope. And I, I want to say first that it's something I, I've thought about a lot and talked to people about. People use the word hope in a lot of different ways, and that's really important to know. Some people use the word hope in ways that could totally be connected with what I was saying. And that would be a kind of a hope. You know, it's kind of a, an optimism in human nature. could be called hope by some. Other peop- for other people, hope is a more limited uh, uh, wish for this or that outcome to occur. Right? And, and that's, that's typically what's cr- criticized. Or that's what, so it's, you know, hope by, for some people is rather limited, and for other people it's very expansive. And so, and, you know, I know uh, people have used the word in such different ways. You know, uh, I know the writer Cornell West has a book called, what, Hope on a Tightrope. And he's using, uh, he's using hope in the more, in the the broader sense. Other people use it as something more limited. So I think that's, it's really critical to see what do you mean by it? Is it really the hope for this or that outcome? Or is it hope for the uh, kind of development of the open heart or something. And then those, those, are, those are different. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Really yeah. Please. I'm thinking, too, in terms of somehow a prediction being involved. That yeah. You're making a prediction that things are going to turn out okay, and if they don't, then you were wrong, and so you were That's wrong right. to feel that way. That's right. But I've always, uh, I try to cultivate in myself a uh, acting as if there is hope, because it's just a better way to live, whether or not it turns out yeah. right to be right or not. Mm-hmm. Because having an optimism and cheerfulness yeah. is just more pleasant. Didn't the Buddha say as much it, it, when, when it got to the question of whether or not these big questions needed to be addressed, that you were better, whether or not there was an afterlife, consider how what you, what you think now affects this life. Yeah, maybe to uh, bring those together somehow. That um, I think, again, the, the question being that of uh, by hope or related words like optimism, do we mean something that is clearly connected with particular outcomes? If that would be the case, that would come under, we might say, the criti- critique of this particular teaching, that that can be very limited and be a way to be tight. Is the hope or optimism for the eventual flowering of the human spirit? Well, that's a little different. You know, 
And, and people use the word optimism in the same way. I can be optimistic about human nature and not so optimistic about what will happen in these circumstances. So I think that's to me is really the key, whether we are um, um, really more tightly uh, connecting our hope, our optimism, our wishes, our um, actions on the assumption that this or that will happen. That's what's being questioned. Are, you know, but something broader, so there is some, I think this was Scott's point also really at first, that when, when we connect our actions to uh, a deep optimism about the roots of human nature, it looks a little different. You know, and we can have very long-term faith, where it's like that phrase by uh, Martin Luther King, where he was quoting Carlyle, I think, the 19th century British philosopher or poet, I forget. And he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's quite similar. So it's a long arc, meaning, well, I, think, I think part of that quotation also is something like truth forever on the scaffold. <coughs> how, does that, how does that go? <coughs> truth forever on the scaffold, but then something shifts, right? So the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's something quite similar. It can be quite long, <laughs> right? You know, but, but there's something that it will bend. Is, is that is a kind of a faith, and ultimately, in our practice here, it's a faith which is ultimately a faith supported by experience, by our own experience as we explore these principles in our own nature. That's all. I think that for me is also kind of the core of what I have found looking at the outer situation, is that there can be a, when we explore with a lot of depth our own nature and how we change and what gets us stuck, and how we work with that. And the fact that we, you know, we have this um, very limited test case, namely, moi. <laughs> you know, and we work with that, and as we stay in this practice and we see fruits, that for me is a cause for optimism about the larger world. You know, ev- you know even though, because it's really ultimately about knowing what's human nature, what are the roots of suffering, and what are the roots of freedom. And that's what we study here. That's what we, we do. Um, so, so, yeah, so the hope or optimism can be, uh, I think, of a more shallow or deeper nature. And, and so we have to be really careful with the way we're understanding the words, because people use the words in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And what I love about this principle is that it really is there in almost every aspect of our life. You know, it's, this is a principle which can guide our practice, our sitting on the cushion. You know? um, it's not to say that we, we, it's not important to have guidance. You know? It's just to sit there and say, I do my best, but then I'm actually not getting good guidance. And I do my best and whatever is, is. Right? So it's, you know, we, we totally do our best. We get good guidance. We, practice well, we get good technique, and so forth, but then we somehow, in our practice for a given session, we let, you know, if we were complaining after the session and judging ourselves, that would not be so skillful. And we, so we do it in our practice. This is also has a certain key for parenting, right? Parenting, this is a 
something like this is a core aspect of parenting, relationships, work, activism. I rest my case. <laughs> okay. So, anyone else before we finish? Maybe one, one more and then we'll I just, finish. I just, yeah, this mm. is like, gosh, it makes so much sense to me um, that how when I first started practicing, I did have to just take it on faith. Yeah. And then I just would get these little tiny um, insights, I guess. Yeah. And feel that really deep peace for maybe a second. Yeah. And that's all. Yeah. And that was enough for me mm -hmm. to say, well, that's possible again. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think those little, those little times, yeah. and, they, and they become more and more frequent. Yeah. Yeah. So. And maybe longer. Yeah. So, lucky. so Cynthia was really remarking about the way that maybe at the beginning of our practice we may take the trajectory of development more on faith. Uh, but then as we practice we have moments and sometimes they can be these small moments just of peace. And those moments, we may interpret those moments as saying, this is who I am at my best. Or this is my true nature. And even though I'm experiencing other stuff, this is what I'll go on and try to have that expand more. You know? And then, again, that's, um, we need to cultivate that equanimity. To, you know, it's, it's interesting. The equanimity works in two ways. On the one hand, that level of peace gives us some energy and support to, to have more staying power or equanimity with the harder stuff. Right? And then as we do that, we, 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 you know, we uh, work through the old patterns. We work through the old conditioning. It has less power on us, and it opens up us more. Those moments of peace become either more frequent or longer in duration. And we somehow come to sit more in them, you know, if we keep on with the practice. And, and, we, and what was once a kind of uh, faith directed towards what someone else said, or you know, maybe someone who had a role for us in which we said, well, I want to be like that person, whatever, something like that. It becomes more who we are. It's, it's, um, and, you know, that the peace or those deeper qualities just are more and more manifest. And that's exactly how it works. You know, and we, we both, um, you know, when we have those moments, they help us be more equanimous with the hard stuff. And then when we're more equanimous with the hard stuff, it opens us up to more of those moments. So it, it's actually kind of a spiral. You know, but they're the... I think it's helpful to think that there are two, these two aspects of practice. One of them is being with our stuff, being with our patterns, our habit, energy, and so forth, and just being with that, which is often uh, not so pleasant. You know? And being with that and learning to see it and not just follow our patterns. You know? When I have a difficult interaction with someone, I don't go right into blaming and judging but I try to sit with it and try to see if I can not go, go that way. And when I do that, that pattern gets a little less strong. And I open it up and I maybe it opens up the space to these more awakened qualities. So, uh, so equanimity is both an awakened quality, but it also supports uh, us working with the harder stuff. So, and then we can... 
use as one particular powerful teaching on equanimity, this teaching of uh, acting fully and somehow letting go of the outcome. Challenging teaching. I don't at all want to say this is easy. You know, my, you know, I learned, you know, that example I gave of learning in the midst of teaching, that was a hard experience. I suffered a lot, you know. I don't think they did, <laughs> but, but I did. And uh, eventually I learned some things. You know, so I was, it was, I was fortunate that I had to, you know, that I had a commitment and job and I had to keep on doing it. If I, you know, another situation, it would have got hard, I just would have left, right? Wouldn't have learned anything. So, um, I will not see you for another five weeks. May you develop this principle well. And um, let's just sit and I'll invite to be present with whatever was helpful from today. It could be that principle, it could be something about equanimity. Sometimes we come and we just have a moment where maybe something that's unresolved because of one word, something clicks and we see something. And that and it may have nothing to do with equanimity or nothing to do with anything I said, but that happens sometimes. So I invite just sitting with whatever is important that came to you this morning and any intentions that come out of the morning. And so we close by remembering that we, um, we're here both for ourselves and for others. And may our practice benefit all beings and we are included among all beings. May it benefit both all beings, so to speak, and very much ourselves as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.